listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, I've been thinking about this episode for about five months. And uh, so I'm really excited because we have a returning guest and a new guest at the same time, which we've never actually done before. So that's a first. Um, But I'm going to cut right to the chase. So our guests today are Matt Dixon and Rory Channer. They are founding partners of DCM Insights and co-authors of the groundbreaking new business book, The Jolt Effect, How High Performers Overcome Customer Indecision. Uh, Matt was with us in January. And in that conversation, he sort of let slip, hey, I'm working on this new research that you guys might be interested in. And we're like, oh, yeah, totally interested in that. And, th- th- and so they're, they're coming on to talk to us about their new research called the Rainmaker Genome Project, something that I think is going to be super valuable for, for all of our listeners. So and it's really about what is it that top partners do differently to drive outsized business performance. So Matt and Rory, Matt, welcome back. Rory, welcome on the show. Excited to have you guys here. Um, you know, let's just start at the beginning. It, well, but before we do that, I guess, is there anything else you want to say about your backgrounds? I kind of just, you know, drove the narrative there, but is there something that I missed? Well, I don't think uh, I, I should actually, Rory, I think your background would be interesting for the for the audience to hear a little bit about. Um, I joined last time, so they already heard from me. <laughs> you know, my, I think the short description for those of you who, did, who missed the podcast that um, I did with the guys on the Jolt Effect uh, not too long ago. Uh, I consider me sort of a sales anthropologist, so I, I'm out there studying with data and research methods uh, what great – historically, it's been what great salespeople do. And that was what we talked about in the last podcast. Yeah. And then I mentioned to the guys that you know we're doing this work on the doer-seller, right, uh, the professional services partner. And knowing the focus of this podcast and the audience, I thought it would be really relevant. But uh, So excited to talk about that new research here. But Rory, I think the audience would love to hear a little bit more about where you hail from and uh, your professional services uh, experience. Okay, I'll give it a go. And uh, Jason, Jeff, thank you so much for having us on. It's a pleasure to be here, of course. Uh, So I I have spent about 30 years in kind of growth positions, I guess is the way to think about them. Head of sales, head of marketing, public company, all the way down to venture back company. And I did take a tour of duty. It always felt like a tour of duty inside (laughs) of a... (laughs) <laughs> a, a, a big big law firm uh, where where I really focused on bringing in best practices from outside of law, commercial best practices into yeah. changing the way they went to market. And I guess that's going to be quite relevant for today's conversation on the operational side. Yeah, I love the way you described that, a tour of duty. That's why I started laughing. You said because I knew where you were going. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this research. So, so the Rainmaker Genome Project um, – what what drove your interest in this research in the first place? Like, why why did you guys decide to study this? What was the driver? This is a um, you guys know this from the last visit I paid you. Uh, that yeah. um, it's a little bit like a vampire. You invite them into your house, you can't get rid of them. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you regret asking a question. Let me go all the way back. I, I don't think I I shared this story. I hope I didn't on the last podcast. But I Rory knows this because Rory was actually. CMO of a company called CEB when we wrote the Challenger sale. And Rory and I were joined at the hips, actually where we first started working together, got to know each other. And Rory was helping us get the word out to the market about that research. And, you know, when that, that research came out in uh, the book came out in 2011, and I've had a lot of opportunities actually to take that content and present it at partner retreats and to professional services firms. 
consulting firms, law firms, some uh, headhunters, um, uh, a whole variety of professional services firms where there it is more of a doer seller model, as, as your audience knows very well. Yeah. Um, and I had this um, experience, um, uh, I gosh, about five, six years ago where I was presenting it to a big strategy consulting firm, I, I shall not mention by name. Um, I was presenting that research and like three quarters of the way through my presentation, the managing partner kind of stood up and like, this is like when a, when your keynote speaker is on a roll, like they, that's not what you yes. do. You know? <laughs> you know? So this person, gentleman stood up front row, stood up and says, I uh, like one of these, like, can you stop? Yeah. I thought my mic had gone out and was like, uh, yes, please. Like, do you have a question or he said, you know, you keep, you've been talking about sales for like 45 minutes now. And what you need to understand is that we don't sell here. Like, that's not what we do. And the only thing I could think to say in the moment was, um, let's stipulate to the fact that there's a mysterious process by which the client's money ends up in your bank account. And can we just call it sales for the remaining 15 minutes? <laughs> Everyone in the room started laughing, but it, but it was, and so I saved, <laughs> kind of saved myself, including the managing partner, thankfully. But I, it was then, and I think in repeated experiences I've had over the years, where I've realized that this model really is different. Um, you know, uh, it's different in almost every uh, way imaginable from traditional B2B sales, where you are um, both selling and delivering. And actually, the product you're selling is yourself, right? And your own expertise. Yeah. Yes, you're selling your firm's capabilities, but you're really selling yourself, your own, your creds, your, your experience, your advisory capabilities, et cetera. And it just always felt to me, I always had this kind of nagging sense that just given the size of the professional services market, that, you know, we had written a book that just was sort of relevant, but not directly relevant to those those folks. And so I always had it as an aspiration to go back and, and study this again, but look at it within the doer-seller world. Fast forward many years later, when Rory was uh, chief business development officer of the law firm he mentioned, um, I was actually in management consulting at the time. And Rory actually hired me and my team to come in, and we did a, a study of what their top rainmakers did differently. Oh, interesting, um, which was really interesting because actually uh, that was our it was a sample size of one, right? It was one firm, but in the findings we found that um, you know there was a lot that we talked about in the B two B sales side that actually was not true on the in the professional services side. And so that got me even more interested. Fast forward to uh, last year, Rory and I actually. Um, as life would have it, I joined up uh, to form DCM Insights with our, our third partner, uh, Ted McKenna, who I co-wrote the Jolt Effect with. And um, Rory, we just we, we came across a client, uh, Intap, uh, who's a large software provider to professional services, uh, the professional services and financial services industries. And they, too, were very interested in this question of what do top yeah. rainmakers do differently? And so they said, we would love to bring you guys in to do this research. And so they sponsored the entire thing. It took about a year. Um, and we can get into why it took so long, but, uh, that was kind of the genesis of the, of the study. Um, just, I think I always had personal interest in this where you saw this firsthand, mm. you know, in your own experience that it, it's a bit of a different world, isn't it? And, um, and we finally got somebody willing to pay, pay for the study. So here we are. <laughs> That's great. It's, it's interesting. You, you say that cause it, it's funny. We did an episode, um, last year sometime we had on, Maria Bolden from Gartner. I don't know if you ever met sure, Maria. Yeah, I know Maria. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Maria talked about all the changes in buying behavior and everything. Yeah. And the funny thing is, after the episode drops, I get a phone call within like uh, two days from uh, one of our clients, you know, CEO of a consulting firm. And the first question out of his mouth is, he's like, how do you think this applies to me? 
Like instantly yeah. he was like, sort of like kind of like on his heels saying like, I don't think that this totally applies to my situation. Mm-hmm. So the reason I share that story is I think it was really interesting that like, t- that you kind of put your, your thumb on that idea that like, there's, there's something a little bit different for these firms that, that, that makes their situation like just be a little different. Um, yeah. So anyway. That's right. And by the way, one thing I'll add here and um, Roy, uh, you, you've lived this um, and you're living this every day with, with uh, partners and associates that we're out there working with um, to teach them to be more effective business developers. But I think there's a, that was a little bit of like the, the personal origin story, I think, and the why Rory and I are interested in this. Uh, in, and uh, Intap as well interested in this, but I think there's you put your finger on something here a moment ago that there is a why now element to this uh, yeah. that is important as well. Look, I, I think in sales in general, and especially in professional services firms, it's always been the case that like 80% of our bookings come from 20% of our partners. Like it's just a very skewed world. We all we've always known this, um, but why now? Why study this now? I think what we're seeing and what we're hearing from firms out there in the market is that we've kind of entered into an era of what I might call um, not client disloyalty, but less client loyalty. And what I mean by that is clients today just feel less um, attached to us than they used to be. We're seeing many more clients, even longtime clients, have us go through formal pursuit processes. Uh, Procurement is getting involved. Clients are bidding work out. Our our C-level decision makers that we've had long relationships with, even personal relationships with, that we play golf with on the weekends, who invite us to their son or daughter's wedding, like those people are not willing to put their thumb on the scale for us in the way that they once did, or if you will, just give us the next piece of work because we did such a great job on the previous piece of work. It just feels like the client buying environment is different uh, today. And what we're hearing from firms then is that that spread between top rainmakers and, and core performers is getting wider and wider. And I think there was actually some some AMLA research recently about um, how much top performers are outpacing their average performing partners just in terms of compensation um, uh, that was just released recently. I don't know the exact data points, but Roy, you're, you're living this with with people on the front lines. What, how does this come across? What are they what are they talking about? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great angle actually because I when I first got to that law firm, I went out as much as I could with the partners to watch what they were doing. And I was always kind of struck by a combination of that's horrifying, you know, kind of <laughs> to, to, wow, that's really interesting. You know, there's, there was a complete scale of uh, across the spectrum, if you like. I, I think one of the things that, that I saw then, and I think to Matt's point is getting a lot worse is those relationships, those tight relationships are no longer as tight as they were. And and they are you're seeing these folks inside of these organizations um, not only not put their thumb on the scale they they're almost they can't right they they kind of they're having to let the process run the process and I think for folks that are just not used to repetition in their sales motion so you know doer sellers are those folks they're not getting enough repetition in inside of that go to market motion to figure out there's a whole different process needed. Um, yeah. And I think that's what's happening is that we're seeing this kind of lack of um, experience in perfecting the the selling. I know we shouldn't use that word, but the selling, um, it's not it's not there. And so I think we have we have a duty to kind of figure out f- figure out like what can we train these folks to, what can we guide them to, that's going to be a better go to market motion for them. Um, so I, I think it's it's very necessary right now because you know all all these factors are at play. 
I don't, I don't want to take us down the, the wrong path, but as you guys were talking, this question popped in my head, and maybe we'll get to this when you outline the research. Are those um, outstanding rainmakers outpacing the non-outstanding in um, acquiring new logos? or retaining the old clients in this new environment? It's both. Both, yeah. Mm. It's yeah. both. Yeah, the, 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 this, this, as we get into the research, you'll see what, what they, they've intuitively figured out a better way, right? That's, that's the underlying process that's going on, which is effective in, in both types of go-to-market motion. Yeah, I, but I do think, Jeff, to your, to your question, a lot of times we walk through the research and that's that's a, almost always the first question we get at the end, which is, is this a hunter or farmer story, right? Net new logo, client acquisition or growth of existing clients, just as you asked. And it turns out to Roy's point, it's actually both. Um, these folks are both more effective with growing existing clients and, and more effective in landing net new clients. Interesting. Um, let, let's talk about the research then. So, so, so well... Maybe, no, let me let me change that. Let me change our direction a little, just briefly. Did you go into the research with a hypothesis as to why that those folks are getting better? Um, and then let's talk about the research you did and what you found. But I'm just curious, when you went yeah. into it, did you have a hypothesis on on why that there was this spread? I think we we did, Rory. I, I think you'd agree with that. But I, it's. Um... It was a little bit of an unfair advantage. It was like we had a time machine um, and we knew that the, you know, uh, the Mets would eventually win another World Series, which you, you guys probably say, well, your time machine's broken because that's what I said. But, uh, but we, uh, what I mean by that is we, when we did the study um, where I was in, on the consulting side and Rory was CBDO at this law firm, we actually were able to, and we took kind of a clean sheet approach. Obviously, Rory and I had the challenger research uh, shared experience. Um we knew a lot of what the conventional B2B sales wisdom was out there as well. And so we kind of came in with a set of hypotheses about maybe the top rainmakers are challengers. You know, maybe they're doing something like that. But we took kind of a clean sheet approach. But I think we what we saw in that early study, and that was back where that was, I think, uh, 2017, 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think what we saw in that original study ended up feeding into this one to see, well, is that still what we're finding and we did. I think we found actually that a lot of what we found originally in that sample size of one study was actually quite, quite on point, wasn't it, Roy? Yeah, it was. It, I guess it was a ten percenter. Yeah, it was on point, but it was a small piece of the story. Was probably the way to think about it. Yeah, I think we, did, we we had hypotheses. We've been we've been training uh, partners and associates to go to market, right? So we've been. You know, when you coach, engage, and train folks to kind of elevate their performance, you see a lot of the same problems, right? So you start yeah. to see the patterns, and you start to see where they're, they're they're struggling. So that helped us think, well, let's go focus on some of those areas where they clearly struggle, and they're really, you know, they're not as strong, and see if they they play out in in the top performing rainmakers, right? Can we see some of those patterns? So that did inform us a little bit, like things like how they spend their time or where they spend their time. That's going to give us pointers as to you know, what the top performers are doing. Our, our training programs at the time, which have now evolved again since the research, at the time, we had a kind of interesting model. We'd always bring in a top performing rainmaker to be part of the training. Because what happens in these, these environments is that the folks look to that person, do you agree with this best practice? Or do you agree with this education? And they're like, yeah, I love it. I've used that here and here and here. And so it kind of reinforced yeah. 
the training back a year or so ago when we started building those training programs. So I think that informed us again of like there are elements here that are clearly working and that they're, they're clearly very effective. So let's direct our some of our attention there. And I think when you see the research and you see some of the things that we found, it kind of fast cycled some of the findings because we knew where we were trying to look, right? So yeah. I think just a, a, a sort of flip side of that question, uh, though, Jason, what I would say is uh, the null hypothesis. In other words, what is the conventional assumption around what top rainmakers do? I think we're pretty clear on that. Um, there is this view um, kind of broadly held across different subsegments in professional services that the key to building a robust uh, book of business is um, that you want to build very deep uh, client relationships. You want to have an exceptional client service ethic. You want to deliver great work, right? We, we've grown up in this world believing that if you do great work and you forge a really tight bond with your client and you know you've done that when you transcend the, the business and it starts to become even more of a, a personal relationship, then that should virtually guarantee that you get the call the next time there's a piece of a legal matter, a, an asset that needs to be sold if you're an investment banker, a uh, you know, um, a piece of tax advisory work if you're an accountant or a consulting project if you're in consulting, that you should get that call because you have effectively built a moat around this client that makes it really hard for the competition to come in and, and steal that relationship. So I would say that's kind of the, if you will, the null hypothesis would be that that's still the winning model uh, for top partners. Um, and the alternate hypothesis, I think, informed by a little bit of what we learned uh, over the years. Uh, starting with the study that Roy and I did a number of years ago at his law firm. So. so I'm super excited that that's the conventional wisdom that might get nudged here. So I I, I, I want to actually create a little drama here. So before we actually throw out the null hypothesis and, and introduce actually, the Actually, we've got one, so we can just wrap it up. And go. Yeah, exactly. So talk to us about the research. How did you do yeah. it? Like, how did you get underneath this layer before we actually release the killer insight? Cause I have a hunch so, there's going to be a really great insight here. So Rory has his uh, scars from his experience as a CBDO for yeah. years in law. I've got the scars from this study, which is, I, you know, there's this funny thing. Um, and you guys, I, I think can attest to this, um, being experts in the space yourselves, uh, especially when we're talking about real partnerships that, you know, where the partners are owners of our co-owners of the business, these firms operate as democracies. And so you've got to, you don't, if you're a CBDO or a CMO or somebody at the corporate center, the last thing you're going to do is sign up partners for something they're going to complain for, because that can mean, you know, you get the boot. Yeah. And so we would talk to CBDOs and CMOs like, this is their number one issue. Like, what do the top people do differently? I'm seeing this gap widen between my core performing partners and my rainmakers in the client buying environment is changing. We all know that. What are the best doing differently? I've got to have this answer. We say, we are here to give you the answer. All you've got to do is deploy the survey for your partners. And then it got into, well, how long is the survey? Oh, it's 30 minutes. Oof, that's a, and, it's like, and so there was a lot of free ridership on this study. What I mean is that there were a lot of firms who said, that is my number one, you know, top three issues. That's number one through four. <laughs> I got to have the answer to this, but still didn't feel comfortable, you know, uh, pulling the trigger and deploying the survey. But fortunately, after many months of working with firms, we did get, um, I think we're on about 25 firms now across uh, law, accounting, investment banking, uh, management and strategy consulting. Uh, and then we had a couple of firms in the PR, kind of corporate reputation management space and uh, executive search talent advisory. Um, so we got a pretty broad based sample. We got to 1600 partners around the world who took this survey. Uh, so in, in broadly representative across. So we got to that point where 
we, we hit the tipping point on our sample robustness of our sample so that the story that would come out of this would be one that would be universally relevant, regardless of whether you're in accounting or you're in law or you're in banking. And so that, but getting there was, was tough. I mean, it was a slog to get there. So these partners went through this half hour survey and this was not a, you know, tick the box kind of easy thing. We yeah. used a lot of like forced trade-off questions, something called max diff. That is, um, the questions are really hard to answer um, and force the, the participant uh, to think. Um, very difficult to do what's called straight lining, which is just, I'm going to fill out C in every single bubble, right? It's just a very, very uh, intellectually challenging survey. For every partner who completed the survey, we went back to the firms um, and we asked them to assign performance scores, BD performance scores for every one of those partners. And it was a set of, I think, five or six questions we used, scale questions, compare Jeff against Rory against Jason on uh, ability to uh, land new net new clients, effectiveness doing that, effectiveness growing existing clients. How much of total available compensation did they earn on a percentage basis last year? It was a battery of questions. We created a composite performance score, and then we ran two types of analysis on it. One, an obvious kind of regression analysis. What are the things? We tested 108 total attributes in the survey. What of those attributes drove that outcome variable? And then secondly, we did something called a factor analysis, which you guys might be familiar with from the Challenger research. That looks at how the 108 variables clump together into buckets, um, which then led to what we're going to now talk about, I think, which is the five profiles of partners uh, that we found, which I think is the most interesting thing that came out of it. And, and I, I'll tip my middle a little bit here um, that uh, some of those are more likely than others to lead to successful business development outcomes. Love it. And I, and I love the I love the in-depth and the rigor because I know that there's partners listening right now. And as you lay out what you're about to say, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, they're going to be arguing in their own head. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So let's hit the five partner profiles and then let's talk about like, you know, which one of those is really, you know, performing at the best and why. Absolutely. And before I, before I do that, uh, yeah. uh, our partner, Ted, would, uh, would, would shoot me uh, daggers if, he, uh, if I forgot to mention this. But every one of the participating the firms, um, all 25, nominated, I think, five top rainmakers for in-depth interviews, which Ted has been running. And those have been just fascinating, right? Because the survey told us the what, the interviews really tell us the how. Um, and then the, the last piece is uh, we did a set of client interviews. So just trying to put our finger on, you know, how is the client client buying environment changing. And I kind of alluded to some of those insights earlier. Um, we're just about to actually launch a, um, a study as well around client buying behavior, a survey-based instrument. So we'll have some more quantitative data around changes in how clients perceive professional services firms and how their buying behavior is actually evolving. Um, so more on that to come. But the five profiles. So we found, uh, in, in before I go through these, I think a couple of caveats. I think the first thing is going to be every single person uh, listening to the show is the first thing they're going to do is try to figure out which one are they. The second thing they're going to try to do is put all their colleagues <laughs> and their boss. And that's totally natural. That's totally natural. I, I will say there's a lot of bleed between these categories. So these are not mutually exclusive. Uh, you're not all of one and none of the others. People are complicated. So what we found is that partners will have elements of all five, but every single one of the 1600 partners we got data on 
statistically spikes in one of them. So it's a more like a college major, right? We, we all take the core curriculum, but we spike in one area. The other things I'll tell you is, um, are, are one, you know, there are good elements to all five of these profiles. I mean, if you could, what you do is pick out the best attributes of all five and create this like, you know, super partner. Um, it's just not how real life works out, right? People choose a path that kind of uh, becomes characteristic of their approach. And then the last thing I'll say is that um, there, you can be successful. You can be a top business developer pursuing any one of these five approaches. So in other words, there are top rainmakers in each of these five. However, as I said before, in some of them, there are a heck of a lot more top performers than in others where it's, you know, there are a few. Um, and that's, that's kind of the rub there. Um, so, so the message then for listeners is if you don't see yourself in the winning profile, if you will, that's okay because we found that there were top performers and other profiles too. Um, but it, this is less a story, I think, for partners who are listening that they should go change everything about who they are, but more about how do we add new skills to our tools to the tool belt to become more effective as the client buying behavior changes. Uh, and I think that's the more important uh, takeaway for folks. So the five, without further ado, so we've got um, five profiles. I'll walk through this. By the way, I have the advantage of looking at the slides here, and that's harder to do on the, on the podcast. Um, but there'll be more, there'll be more um, uh, publication and release of this out there um, as we, we firm up the research. So the first partner type is the expert. Um, the expert I would call the reluctant business developer. So this is the person who does business development because that's what's expected of partners, um, but they they don't do it in it. They're not executing a sales motion. In fact, they're not really selling anything. They're actually waiting for the client to find them and call them and, and look for their expertise. So the, the, what they do is they hang up a shingle in the market or a signpost in the market. They do that by doing a lot of speaking, uh, conferences, panels, uh, podcasts. They do um, a fair amount of thought leadership, um, some of it on their own, some of it in partnership with their the marketers in their firms. Uh, but their goal is to become known as one of the experts in this area. And then when the client out there has a need that aligns with their expertise, the client calls them up. Now, what that means in practical terms is from a business development standpoint, they're, they're kind of in order taking mode, right? They're responding to a need the clients already realize they have, not creating a need for the client uh, and getting ahead of the RFP. So you get pulled into a lot of RFPs, a, it's a lot of competitive um, situations that they find themselves in. But that's kind of their uh, their MO when it comes to BD. Um, and, and by the way, this is a good example of like, obviously, all partners are experts. But these folks hang their hat on like, that is my calling card mm -hmm. from BD. I'm going to be the expert in this space and people will call me. Um, the second one is the confidant. So the confidant, I think, is, is probably the null hypothesis um, uh, partner. So this is the person who builds a moat around the client. They're exceptionally responsive to client needs. The client asks them to jump. They ask how high. They deliver exceptional service. They deliver fantastic work to the client. Uh, they, they build deep business relationships that they hope will then transcend into the personal domain, right? I, I know your family. We go skiing together. We, we play golf together on the weekends. I went to your son or daughter's wedding, et cetera. That's how you, when you hear them talk about it, that's kind of, they, they say, those are my very best clients because we have that kind of relationship. Their BD um, mindset is, if I've got this tight relationship with my client, and if I've done great work for them in the past, I'm going to get the next phone call because we're tight like that. And I should, I've earned the right to just get, get the next piece of work. One side point about uh, two or two side points about uh, these folks. Um, one, Rory, I'm going to steal your, um, your story on this one, which I, I love. 
But uh, the first thing I'll say is that they tend to be more focused on the senior most uh, decision maker, the, the GC, the CFO, the head of M&A, um, the head of strategy, then they are focused on the team, right? So they're not they're not engaging so much with the AGC or the deputy tax director. They're more focused on that C-level decision maker. That's the person they want to be in with. And then the other thing is they tend to hoard the relationship. So um, Rory tells a story that um, these are the folks who would call them every month and yell at them about why their, their client got the firm newsletter without their permission, right? Or why this partner in this part of the firm called in and without, you know, they don't put any notes in the CRM system. Like this is my relationship, right? Um, all right. Uh, so you guys are laughing. You, you oh, guys, yeah. oh yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We all know these people. Exactly. I just saw a normal distribution curve in the big <laughs> middle. Yeah. 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 There you go. Um, hey, you're not too far off there, Jeff. I'll show you the data that backs that up. So um, uh, activator is the third profile. So the activator is a network builder. So the Activator is very active on LinkedIn, BoardEdge, tools like that. They also are very heavy users of firm-sponsored events. Um, they go to those events with a game plan. I'm going to meet with this many clients. I'm going to get this many business cards and have this many follow-ups as a result. It is a BD uh, motion for them. When they're on LinkedIn or BoardEdge, they're trying to build this network of prospects and prospective clients, uh, prospective clients and current clients, subject matter experts that I can harvest from to drive uh, new business. Um, they uh, they then activate those networks and those connections by proactively bringing new ideas to the client. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, we interviewed a partner at a top global law firm who runs state and local tax, and he told us um, he every Friday he goes through the recent uh, the major tax court decisions, which he's like, I know my client doesn't have time to do that because they operate in many jurisdictions. I do it for them, and then what I do is I decide who in my network, and I've got a pretty big network. But who are the 10, 15, 20 clients out there that for whom this might this decision might have real impact? And, and does it create an occasion for us to have a conversation? So I'll reach out to those clients and some of them will take me up on it. Some of them won't. And that's fine. And when I reach out to them, I want to give them my perspective and my point of view. I'm not looking to send them a bill for that. I'm looking to pay it forward and give myself a leg up that when they do realize this is something they need to pay for help on, that I've got a, a leg up because I brought the idea to them. And I gave them some free advice, which, by the way, also for new clients, gives them a chance to kick the tires a bit on me as an advisor. A um, couple other interesting things about these folks. They, unlike the confidant, they're, they're as focused on senior most decision makers as they are building broad-based connections across the client organization. So I want to get to know the team. I'm gonna, somebody used this metaphor. I love this one. Is uh, I'm not just trying to button the top button. <laughs> I'm trying to do the full zipper, right? right? I want my team to be connected with their team. I want my senior folks to be connected with their senior folks and at every point in the hierarchy. And I want to lay the groundwork for relationships across the business. Um, and then the, the last thing I think is um, uh, really interesting about these folks is unlike the confidant who is about hoarding relationships, these folks are the opposite. They're all about making introductions. So I want to make sure if I can't help you, but but Jeff can help you because it's, area, it's not my area of expertise, but it is Jeff's. I'm going to say to my client, you know what? I'd love to help you there, but that's not my area of expertise. But you know who is an expert on that? We've got the world's leading experts. Jeff, he owes me a favor. Let me see if I can get you an hour on his calendar. You owe it to your firm to have a conversation with him. Now, Jeff owes me one because I walked him into a client. And then secondly, uh, I get the halo effect in the same way as if any of us recommended a restaurant or a movie, right? And somebody says, boy, I love that restaurant. We get the halo effect of that because I know the client's going to have a great conversation with Jeff. And that reflects positively on me because I did a, I did a solid for my client, even though I didn't personally uh, help them with that work. The third, I'm sorry, the fourth profile is the debater profile. 
Now, um, we originally called this um, uh, this profile the um, uh, the Challenger, and we thought better of it. Um, the reason is for those of listeners who know the Challenger work. A lot of being a challenger is about leading with insight and leading with ideas. And, and the activator, as I just talked about, does do that, right? They're very proactive. They get ahead of the RP. They bring the idea to the client. The difference with the debater and the reason we went with that name is they tend to be kind of hard-edged about it. They've got a very firm point of view. My job is to come in, tell the client they're thinking about it wrong, reframe their whole understanding of what their need is, and then get them to follow my lead and lead them to my innovative solution I have for them. Um Interestingly, we do find these folks uh, tend to be more successful in certain segments where there's a lot of pricing transparency, it's a lot of RFP-driven business, and there's not a lot of differentiation. So like executive search is a good example. Uh, Fees are the same across all search firms. We all have the same Rolodex of of candidates. It's LinkedIn, right? And so you've got to come in and change the way your client's thinking about the job spec if you want any chance of winning this search. So, so that debater profile, but you'll see in a moment, they, in aggregate, they don't do very well, but you do see spikes or pockets where they do better than in other industries. And I think the reason is that um, dealing with the debater can be kind of exhausting for a client. If every, every time you sit down with your partner, they're telling you you're doing it wrong, that's tough, right? Um, okay, the last one's the realist. So the realist is an interesting profile. This is the person who, uh, again, it's not to suggest that all partners are not forthright and truthful and above board and honest, but these are the folks who almost do it to a fault. So not a fault, but they they hang their hat on that. Uh, they believe that in a world of charlatans where there are lots of partners and firms who will sign up for work they've never done before, will overstate their credentials and their experience, will send surprise invoices, will sell you legal work knowing full well the case is not winnable uh, or the matter won't accomplish what you need it to accomplish. I'm the person who's going to be straight straightforward with you, and I'm going to I'm going to tell you like tell you like it is right now. Um, that it is interesting that these people appear in this industry in particular. But they believe that the client is going to buy from me if they know they're going to get the straight answer. And I'm never going to send a surprise invoice. I'm never going to tell you a case is winnable when it's not. I'm never going to tell you that this will accomplish these objectives for the budget you've carved out for it when I know it can't be done, right? Um, so that's our that's our realist. So there are five types of partners there. And let me I'll tell you, um, uh, just to pull it forward, two, two things. The first thing is when you look at the distributions, because a little bit, Jeff, to what you said, you do see a spike in that confidant. Profile, and this is yeah. this is not surprising, right? In the world where that idea of like find your client, bear hug your client, like build that mode around the client through exceptional service, exceptional work product, um, and exceptional delivery and execution, that has been seen as the gold standard of great uh, of building a great book of business for many many years. It's been preached um, uh, to partners around the world across all of these uh, areas of professional services for a very long time. So you do see a spike there. It's close. It's uh, I think in the last data run, it was close to a high 20% of all partners fall into that. Now, in certain segments, like law, for instance, it's um, north of 30%. It's like 35 to 40%, I think, in some law firms of their partners fall into that confidant profile. So that is, again, that's kind of the null hypothesis there. The other ones are kind of evenly distributed beyond that. But that's the confidence one where you see the big spike. Um, now, when you look at performance... Um, there's two ways uh, to look at this. So the first one is we looked at the distribution, obviously, of the top rainmakers. And remember, we didn't use their self-assessment data. We didn't ask them how good they think they are. We asked their firms how good they are. And we created this composite score. When you look at the top 20% of partners, here's what you find. 32% of all rainmakers fall into that activator profile. Yeah. Okay. Um, the next one down is the realist at 28%. Now, I 
a lot of people look at the bars, and it's probably because my graphics skills in PowerPoint aren't very good, but they look pretty close together. Our data science team will tell you that's actually statistically a pretty big difference. 28% of high performers are realists. And then it kind of tails off pretty dramatically after that. 19% of confidants, 11% are experts, 9% are those debaters. Um, a quick word about the experts. I think people are not entirely surprised by that because these folks just don't get a lot of at-bats. They're waiting for the phone to ring. It's a, it's kind of a high, a very uh, high beta approach. So that's the distribution of the top performers. Now, park that kind of mental picture in your head for a moment. We also ran the distribution of the lowest performers. So the bottom 20% of partners, here's what we found. Activators are not just the top percentage of the high performers at 32%, they're the smallest percentage of low performers at only 12%. So in other words, if you were to fill a hat with names of your activator partners in there and you stuck your hand in the hat and you pulled the name out, you're way more likely to find a rainmaker, a top rainmaker, or at least an above average performer than you are to find a below average or, or bottom performer in that activator population. The realist, I said, finish a close second to high performance. It's actually a pretty good chunk of them who are underperformers. Almost 19% of the low performer population were realists. It's an interesting um, uh, conundrum because, again, they do pretty well. They finish a close second, but they're also a big chunk of the, um, of the underperformer population, which kind of washes that out a little bit in terms of the, the upside benefit of being a realist. The confidant is the one we get the biggest surprise at. So not only did they finish kind of meh, when we look at high performance probability, they are the highest percentage of the low performer population. So they are uh, 27% of all the low performers. Now, in the other ones, the expert and the debater, much more likely to be a low performer um, than a high performer in both of those profiles. What's interesting though is, again, this null hypothesis, this view that you know, the key to being a great partner in professional services to be that confidant. Um, I, I will tell you guys, you know, we originally, in the original naming, we kind of called this person the trusted advisor. And and that was one week I was a little edgy and people said, I wouldn't do that. And the reason is, and I think it was good advice actually, because all five of these partners would say they consider themselves a trusted advisor yes. to their clients. But I think the confidant is probably that old school trusted advisor, right? Um, and, and just the that again, old school is probably the best way to describe it. Um, uh, it. But that profile, to be very clear, you are more likely to fail in today's client buying environment than succeed by picking that door amongst the five doors that that you might walk through as a new partner, as an associate, as you start to chart your way as a fee earner in professional services. So, you know, it's funny as you were talking. I, I, I well, first off, I, I love it. I love all of the thinking. I love I love the data. Um, and I wasn't surprised after you laid out all five mm -hmm. and it, I was going to actually pause you and, and make a bet with Jeff on what would be the top <laughs> yeah. performer. And it's funny, but as you were talking, I kind of felt like in my head, I was like, um, confidants are like Rainmaker 1.0, mm -hmm. experts are Rainmaker 2.0 and activators are Rainmaker 3.0. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I like and if you map it to what's going on in the world, you kind of feel like it's like, that's what's going, you know, it, it maps to the reality of the buyer. Yeah. The reality 30, 40 years ago felt like, yeah, I needed that relationship. And then all of a sudden, it's like Google shows up and search shows up. And all of a sudden, I can go find experts anywhere. Mm -hmm. And now there's so much thought leadership out there, so much content out there. I'm overwhelmed. So if someone's going to come to me and like kind of like like curate the world for me and tell me what to do all the time, I'm going to love that that person, right? Yeah. So like it, there's just so much logic in the way you framed it. Um so super excited about the findings, honestly. So let me just pause. That, that, that was my initial thought. But anyway, what are you going to say, Rory? We might, uh, might steal that one from you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. It's, Please do. You're right. The, um, 
uh, that, especially when you think about the you know, thought leadership, the easy findability of, I, we've heard we've heard a lot of firms, or we interviewed these C-level decision makers, and these people have been buying legal services, investment banking services, search services, consulting projects for decades. A lot of these clients do say professional services is just less of a black box than it used to be. I mean, they just, I can find experts that do, you hear these clients talk about it and they're like, why wouldn't I bid out every piece of work? Like, look, I love those guys who did the last project. I love these guys who did the last executive search or, or execute the last transaction for us. But I owe it to myself and to my firm to make this a competitive process because there's no downside to inviting all these different players in to pitch their point of view. I'm doing myself a disservice by not listening to them, right? And then we get to learn, you know, worst case scenario, we just end up going with the folks we used last time. That's fine. We're happy to do it. Best case scenario, we find somebody who's got a unique point of view and uh, is a, an expert in a space that maybe we never even heard of these folks before. And so it's it's just really interesting to hear clients talk about this. Jason, one, one of the things that made me trigger when you said 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, which I think is very, very smart, um, I think so. I, the one thing I didn't share earlier, I, I was originally a psychologist. So way back, I started as an industrial psychologist. And so I'm, I'm always very fascinated by the kind of motivation, mind positioning of, of something. Yeah. And it's really clear that the orientation that each of these partners have to the relationship build is 100% different. And so what, what I mean by that is that what they're pushing through as value is different in the relationship forming process. Yeah. So activators are pushing very heavily on helpfulness, right? So that's that tax example that that, that Matt gave. What that tax uh, attorney is doing is thinking about how can I be helpful based on what I'm learning about changes in the tax law. Same with the consultant, like how can I be helpful in trying to help this organization see around the corner and think about this next upcoming thing that I've seen another company really struggle with. So they they push the helpfulness. The expert is obviously pushing knowledge. That their, their, their view on life is, I know these things that everybody needs to know. Right? That's the, that's what they're doing. Yeah. Whereas the confidant, what they're, they're seemingly pushing is responsiveness, which is kind of it's good, but kind of oddly good in a sense. And I think that's that that one thing is in a world where I couldn't find all these different service providers and I only had one, I did want them to be responsive, right? Because I wanted to get it done. Now I have lots of options and I just want the best answers for me, not necessarily the quickest answers for me. And you can see how that that mode is shifted away from from those types being the 1.0 to the 3.0 is because they're, they're actually pushing the value driver or the, the value pushed through the relationship is, is the wrong one. And of course, confidence you know we can see why that's that's moving away but there's to the other two low performing profiles the debater it could be helpful to challenge me as i push in alternative views but do i need that all the time i probably don't right and so i think thinking about the motivators to of what they're pushing to build those relationships actually turns out to be a very interesting viewpoint on it you know i find this consistent with with my experience in in talking um with my clients, there's there's some core messages that I try to drive to them when they're pulling their growth strategy together, their marketing strategy, sales strategy, is you need to identify your core client, right? And what is that core client? And to me, it has two dimensions. One, it's where the firm shows up as its best self. So my personality syncs with that personality. Um, 
however that is, right? It's where I show up best. It might be situational. It might be conditions, whatever the case may be. And two, you have to sell to people that value the value you provide, right? And how do you define value? Well, that's in the eye of the beholder. So my sense in your research is um, those activators are relationship-driven people hooking up with relationship-driven people. The experts are hanging or hooking up with the experts. I, I mean, is that what you're seeing? Or could that be what's underneath that? I, it, I think it might be more of an and than an or, right? Hmm. So the activators are, are pushing hard at that because they're seeing the response back from the clients. There's, there's very few clients out there that aren't going to want to be getting hooked into somebody's incredible network, right, in, in that sense, right? So if, if you can drive additional value beyond your helpfulness, beyond the, the kind of re, uh, interactions that you're having with me and help me maybe find my next role or help me understand who else in your organization could be very useful to my network or to my team. Um, I, I think that they, to Matt's point earlier, it's not that these folks aren't trusted advisors or experts or they don't have, it's not that they have none of that. They have enough of it, right? But it's the added flavor of activator that's clearly what everybody seems to want, right? So I, I think, Jeff, there's something in, could you find a client that only ever wants to be given expertise and that's all they want? You could probably find that client somewhere, mm-hmm. but seemingly, and a lot of the research we're seeing on the client side, that the, this behavior is what they're after. This general stance and interaction style, no matter what you're buying for, whether it's just a piece of expertise or, or something more broadly, this seems to be something that plays out for the buyer as well. I was, I was thinking a bit about, um, as you guys were talking, the, you know, if we think about that, you know, uh, confidants being that kind of legacy, old school, default, null hypothesis, whatever you want to call it, but also the biggest spike we see in the representation of those five profiles across professional services, and especially a huge spike in certain segments like law uh, and accounting, actually, we see a lot of, um, uh, of uh, confidants as well. Um, if I contrast that with the activator, and, and I think we go back to where we started our conversation, and you guys are you guys are hitting on all these themes here. The why now, and I, I really like Jason what you said about. Look, thirty years ago, had we done this analysis, I don't think we would have found the same thing. But I think it's a very different uh, environment that our clients are operating in. It's certainly a different buying environment. And I think if you you then think about what why is an activator approach um, successful in today's environment, one of the things we talk about is that um, it is it's differentiated on two dimensions. So on the one hand, it is more about the we than the me. So an expert, a confidant is all about you and me. It's you and me, baby. Like it's, I'm the <laughs> person. I don't want to introduce you to anybody else. The activator is much more about, about the we, right? Selling the breadth of the firm's capabilities. But, but importantly, I think when you think about the practical implications of building a big, robust network versus that you quite literally see this in the confidant data in the analysis, they go very deep with a very small handful of clients. And then they are like, it is, I am literally hanging my whole book of business on these three big clients and hoping that like the ATM machine doesn't conk out at some point. Um, the, the activator by building a robust network just has a lot more at bats, right? They've got a lot more opportunity in their quote unquote pipeline that they're working at any given time. That makes them way less exposed when a big client says, eh, we're going to bid this out and they end up going with somebody else. If you're a confidant, that's, that's it. Like that's your your year, if not many years in your career, that you now need to spend rebuilding uh, your book. If you take that approach, 
Secondly, think about, um, uh, you know, just client organizations. Remember, the activator builds robust networks inside the client organization. So not just the senior most, but the team as well, doing the full zipper approach. That's really valuable in a world in which senior most get fired, like left, right, center all the time. They get up and leave. We spoke to um, uh, a partner, Rory and I interviewed um, a number of months ago, who said, I have built this self-feeding BD uh, motion by spending time, investing time as an attorney with the deputy GC, with the AGC, with all the, the folks lower down and the, fo- the folks across the enterprise. This person specialized in oil and gas said all those folks are now GCs at big companies in this industry. And they call me because I'm the one who who didn't say, oh, I'm too senior to spend time with you. I, sh- I showed interest in their career. I spent time with them. I, I got them connected with my team and, uh, and I paid it forward. And now they're calling me for help. Then you think about, um, again, that, that idea of, of selling the breadth of, of the firm's capabilities, not just what I can do. And the, the research is very clear on this. And I think it can be very counterintuitive for partners. You are much more likely to cement a relationship with a client if you introduce them to your colleagues and your colleagues do great work and, and that, that then amplifies the value you're delivering to that client. The confidant lives in fear that their colleagues might screw it up for them, right? And if that happens, then boy, this relationship is over. But again, Rory, you saw this in your own experience. I'm sure you guys have seen this too, but where people cross-sell and pull in the breadth of the firm and make introductions to other practices, other partners, that client relationship is way healthier, right? Uh, and way more stable and, and it thrives. So uh, I know we're coming up on time and I don't want to, uh, what are the implications of this? So like um, if I'm the CEO, I'm the managing director or managing partner of the firm, mm-hmm. what should I do differently given this information? Because the insights seem pretty clear and they make a ton of sense given the context in which clients find themselves right now. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I can hear some people listening to this saying, well, I'll just, you know, either they're going to stick their head in the sand and not do nothing, or they're going to just say, well, I'll just hire all people that have this activator skill, which I don't think is the answer either. So, so what, what should be, what should we be thinking about? How do we, how do we, you know, internalize this and, and, and change the way we approach, you know, our, our, our sales motion, if you will. And I, and I, yes, I like the word sales. I use it a lot. So. <laughs> we do too. Uh, Rory, I'm going to let you answer the firm question, but I think the first thing I should say, we didn't, we didn't really go here yet, but there there's a lot of data that describes this activator approach. The way I'd encourage listeners to think about it is it's a three, it's an approach with three pillars. The first one is about um, connecting. So building robust networks, using LinkedIn, using events, like being very purposeful and building your network because your network is your pipeline and your fu- your current and your future business uh, pipeline. The second thing is create. So we don't want to re- wait like an expert or a confidant for the client to say, or even a realist, honestly, for the client to say, hey, I have this need. Can you help me out? We want to be proactive by creating new opportunities. As you said, um, uh, Jason, help them make sense of all that content out there. Bring these ideas to them proactively. Be helpful, as Rory said. Create those opportunities to discuss doing business together. And the last thing is you want these folks, and I didn't mention this before, the third pillar is commit. They have a clear commitment to BD that you do not see with the other partners. They spend meaningful amounts of time on BD. It doesn't mean they're sales-focused partners. They're just more balanced partners. They don't let BD time get crowded out by other work, which is what you see with all the other partners, especially with confidants. Well, I do it when I get to it, but unfortunately, I'm too busy serving my existing clients and bending over backwards for them. I never get to BD. That's not the case with with the activator. So- um, connect, create, commit are the three the three ideas we, we like people thinking about. 
but you mentioned this before. Part of this is about training people to do this stuff, right? Um, but part of it is also about what can I do at the firm level as a CBO, as a CMO, as a managing partner. So Rory, you've got uh, you've got an hour's worth of opinions on that one alone. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of hours on it. Yeah, you're right. I, well, I think that there is genuinely a lot of lot to digest from the research. This is this is pretty interestingly. Um, I wouldn't say game changing than game shifting. You you could bury your hand, bury your head, Jason, in the sand, and you could avoid it. But this, if if we've now articulated what the very best are doing, and it's different to what we thought was the very best, then you have a choice of either growing or acquiring, right? So we can either go go find those folks and, and bring them in. So there could be a whole lateral hiring strategy that we have around who we're bringing in and why. Or you could bring, build you know, the, the, the people process technologies around it to encourage it. So think cultural shifts around this type of profile, the incentives that you would create around there. It, it's pretty pervasive because once you go down this path, even down to what's our event strategy for? You know, why why, why are we putting on an event? In, in the past, you may have got as far as saying, well, it's to build business and we should record that. In this world, it wouldn't be that for at all it would be to extend ecosystems and networks. And we need to be very strategic about who do we want to come to this event and why in terms of building these bonds and it, it, extending our, our, our networks, right, our ecosystems. Um, I think from a cultural perspective, these these activators are not only incredibly savvy at building the external network, they're very savvy about building the internal network. And so when we think about how we're fostering the knowledge systems inside of our organization and the connections inside of our organization to in, to enable these folks to operate externally we don't think that way we're not we're not thinking about what's that infrastructure needed to be and then i think there's a whole raft of kind of nudge technologies things that we would encourage them to do to matt's point about the consistency that they have if you're if you are uh, going down this uh, road you would say well we've got 30 minutes that we're expecting of every partner to spend on bd every day Okay, that's step one. Well, what's in that thirty minutes? Is step two. Like, what 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 should that look like, and why and how? It would completely change your go to market operating system, because you would then be thinking about well, what's the collaboration network behind that thirty minutes? How do we think about the time we're spending together, depending on the client or the sets of clients, etc. So, I think the kind of implications for infrastructure are pretty wide and important, actually, and. The last thing I'll leave you with, what this, I think, ultimately does is say, we will not leave to chance that a young associate has the right mentor for the right model, because we now know what the right model is. And if you think about how associates, come, they either got lucky or unlucky. They got attached to an activator and they figured out how to do it well in the last you know five years, or they got attached to an expert. And, and that expert was very kind of hands off with their coaching style and Oh, it'll be fun. you know you'll you'll get the hang of this. And, you know they kept them out of the accounts, and they very get get very little face time with clients, etc. So, I think that probably is one of the most important things that we can kind of re-energize and re-look at. That we we shouldn't just give folks to other folks and hope that they learn how to create the optimal go-to-market mo- motion. You know, that would be silly. Yeah, and we shouldn't assume that that you're 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 innately born one this way or that way that you know that you're you're exactly. by by your very nature you're a debater or whatever yeah um, and i've had know. chairman tell me why are we bothering to train associates of on, on business development that's silly well that's <laughs> that's a crazy thinking right yeah it's crazy you know and i think maybe because they thought this mentorship model would work right yeah 
Well, we, well, it comes back to we don't we don't sell we don't sell anything, Matt. Yeah, uh, we don't, you don't understand. We don't sell, so we don't need to train that behavior at all. <laughs> so, um, well, I could spend like seven hours on this, and we could have like a ninety-three hour podcast, and I could still keep going because I'm super excited about this research. Yeah, Where we can really um, go ahead, Matt. Nothing. <laughs> this is What's that? If you have a really long road trip coming up, we got the podcast for you. We got the podcast for you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so where can, where can listeners find the research findings? Where are you, where are you uh, going to publish these um, in depth? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, uh, you know, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll uh, likely have published in a couple of spaces. We're talking to some, I won't mention where, but a couple of top tier journals to get the results in there. We're also, Likely, this is probably going to be the next book. I mean, there's you guys can tell from this conversation. I mean, oh, yeah. we barely scratched the surface, and there's a very detailed story to tell, both for uh, for the associate slash partner, the individual fee earner, but also for the firm leader. And uh, and so we're starting to work through that motion as well. I just I just stopped getting over my flashbacks from the Jolt Effect, so now we sign up for another one. Uh, but uh, look for that at um, you know on bookshelves or bookstores. Are there bookstores anymore? I don't know, but look for look for it where they sell books uh, in the not too distant future. And then I guess if folks want to learn more about what we do at, at DCM Insights, as Rory said before, we're very active in um, uh, helping clients uh, to firms to bring these activator skills to the associate level, to the partner level, to even to the leadership level as well as doing a lot of advice around how do I create an activator firm, right? What, what are the things I need to do by way of, to Roy's point, technology, event strategy, marketing, so on and so forth. Um, so you can look us up at uh, dcminsights.com uh, and uh, our program is called the Activator Development System. So we've, um, uh, you can check out that URL as well and there's plenty more information on there about how we work with firms and, and roll, roll these techniques out. Awesome. Well, this is fabulous. I, I really, uh, I'm, I'm so glad we got you back. And Rory, I'm so glad you're able to join us today. And uh, just just a wonderful hour spent together. Um, you know, best best hour of the week. So so uh, maybe of the month. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, I know you're yeah, just too um, kind, Jason. That's, that, that. <laughs> you say that's all your guess. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> so, um, thanks so much, guys. Can't wait to see the, the this get get fully published, and and uh, so, so uh, honored to have you here. So great to be with you guys. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.